Hello, folks. Welcome to What in the World. Uh, it is Friday morning. Uh, we are happy to be here. I'm being joined by my co-host, Ryan Rosenthal, and also by our executive producer, Javed Ali, who, as you may know, served as a senior director for counterterrorism in the National Security Council. And I guess it's a great time, job for you to be here with us to talk about these big issues, because the biggest issue I think we'll talk about today is the drawdown from Afghanistan. And President Biden yesterday announced that by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we will have zero troops in Afghanistan. Javed, I guess, what are your thoughts on this? What are your first reactions? Good move, bad move? What do you think? Andre Ryan, um, thanks for having me. Always good to, to share the virtual stage with you guys. And yeah, pretty, um, pretty um, significant decision announced by President uh, Biden yesterday. I would argue this is the first big foreign policy decision the administration has made so far in the early days of the of the presidency. And, um, and this was going to be one of the most controversial, right? Sort of winding down, at least uh, um, based on what's being described, sort of the U.S. combat mission in Afghanistan that um, started now when we get to September 11th of this year, 20 years ago. Uh, so, I mean, just loaded with so much history and so much importance and so much relevance for national security, for, for counterterrorism. But one of the big questions is we don't know what impact this will have yet. It's, it's too early to tell. And if, if the decision is really to, to go down to zero combat troops and only have uh, a military presence at the embassy, both in terms of uh, the presence protecting the embassy with a traditional Marine Guard uh, detachment, um, and then sort of uh, U.S. military advisors in the embassy. I mean, we haven't seen that model um, since the U.S. reestablished uh, uh, an embassy in in Kabul. So again, that that's going to have a significant impact. Um, if you look at um, other examples uh, in history where the U.S. had a strong security partnership um, with a country like uh, well, it wasn't necessarily the the government of Afghanistan, but with sort of the Mujahideen in the 1980s to fight the Soviet um, uh, invasion, and then the U.S. kind of walked away from the relationship with those militias um, by late 19 in the late 1980s, and also with Pakistan, and then. There was a vacuum created there, and we kind of lost an insight in what was happening on the ground. And then because of the turmoil in Afghanistan with the Civil War and the return of Osama bin Laden by um, 1996 and the rise of the Taliban, then you know, Al-Qaeda established itself there. But we didn't really have a good sense of what was happening on the ground because a lot of that that effort and infrastructure that had been in place in the 80s wasn't wasn't there anymore. So that's We've seen an example of that. Now we didn't have combat troops there, but but certainly U.S. government presence, um, although it was relatively small. But then another interesting analogy is uh, the example of Iraq in 2011. So after eight years of combat operations in Iraq and a lot of investment of, of personnel and people and um, a lot of casualties as, as well, the U.S. withdrew completely all its combat forces outside of the embassy-based presence and. In Baghdad, and um, once again, through that decision, the U.S. lost the ability to truly, or have a better understanding of what was happening on the ground, um, not only in Iraq but other parts of the Middle East. And that was critically important then because of 
the Arab Spring and, and then the civil unrest that started to spread throughout the region and then the Syrian civil war and then um, the rise of the group uh, ISIS, which had previously been al-Qaeda in Iraq during the, you know, the, the, the phase of the U.S. Uh, presence from 2003 to 2011. So, so those are two pretty stark examples of when the U.S. leaves or withdraws, one, not necessarily combat troops in Afghanistan in the 80s, but Iraq in 2011, and we lose the insight to understand what's happening on the ground. We lose those connections. We, we don't have the infrastructure to plug into. Um, that can, can create gaps in our understanding and, and lead to um, reducing our visibility into what some of these emerging terrorist threats look like. So that's going to be one of the key questions with now that reduced military presence uh, or the, the presence that gets down to a you know, very, very small number outside of the embassy. What will our understanding be of the terrorist threats that will remain in Afghanistan? There's ISIS Khorasan. There's probably some remnants of al-Qaeda um, there are other uh, jihadist-based groups running around in either Afghanistan or Pakistan, and they can cross the border easily. How many of them still harbor intentions against our interests in the region or um, the West or even the homeland? These are all important questions that we need to be thinking about to make sure that we don't see a repeat of the things that I just described. So these are all the tough questions that are on the table. These are the things that hopefully the administration thought through as they as they came to this decision and the president ultimately made it. Um, but this is the reality we're going to have to live with if we do get down to that zero combat troop presence. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of you know consequences and implications of this decision. And I just want to extract a few important things and highlight them just for our, our listeners. The first being that uh, the Taliban is an extraordinary power. They're, they're a political force in Afghanistan. And I mean, they ruled the country from 1996 until the U.S. invasion in 2001. And so they, of course, are looking to take power again. And so uh, that, that has many implications and consequences for the Afghan population, the actual people of, Af of Afghanistan. Um, we were in Afghanistan in order to write one, the, the Al-Qaeda issue to kind of take out Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden's um, kind of roots there. But it's also to support the Afghan people and ensure that they can, you know, clear a path for their own um, pursuance of of their own self governance. And then I guess the second part is that NATO, right? NATO has had seven thousand non American troops in the country, and so it's not just the U.S. that is withdrawing from Afghanistan; it's NATO as well. And then the third thing is, right? Are we creating a vacuum? Is this Iraq, um, or is it more akin to Syria? Right? I mean, President Biden before he became president, while he was on the campaign trail, um, criticized then President Donald Trump for withdrawing from Syria, saying that it was a bad decision, saying that we're just leaving the Kurds, we're allowing our adversaries to operate freely, and so I mean, again, this raises a variety of questions. Um, while ending endless wars is a bipartisan issue, we're seeing um, a lot of criticism. Uh, on, on, you know, the Republican side with, of you know, some sort of a little bit of criticism on the Democratic side, but we'll see what the actual withdrawal looks like. Um, I anticipate that we'll see, you know, all combat troops out. But again, if, if the U.S. is really kind of, you know, picking up everything and just, you know, heading out, I, I can't imagine it's going to make the Afghan government's um, solidif solidification of power easy, just particularly because the Taliban have, have such a, a, a a grounding in and such a significant ability in insurgency. And so 
Uh, I think, I mean, it'd be terrible to see, but I think it's just inviting the Taliban to take over again. Yeah, lots of excellent points there, Ryan, and I'll just try to address some of them. Um, And there are a lot of people who have said that the only thing sort of holding the Taliban back from a complete um, takeover of of power um, is the the Western military presence that's been in Afghanistan for uh, 20 years, the U.S. and, and NATO. But with not only the U.S., as you said, and NATO um, troops leaving, and that's going to take several months to, to happen. It's not going to happen overnight, obviously. Um, that at that point, the Afghan government is going to be on its own for the most part. And um, e- despite the tremendous amount of effort with training and expertise and investment in capabilities of the Afghan National Army, their special operations forces, their, their police, there are experts who think that the Afghans still won't be able to uh, sort of roll back uh, a Taliban um, sort of onslaught or won't be able to kind of stand it and fight without all the support from NATO and the United States. And we don't know. I mean, again, it's, it hasn't happened yet. But again, the experts are saying that the probability of that scenario is is high. And if that were to happen, that would be um that would be destabilizing for lots of reasons. It would probably lead to a lot of the gains that have occurred in Afghanistan on the positive side with sort of economic development, some level of political stability, rights, human rights and um, education. Those things could all be reversed. Now it's up to the Taliban to, you know, will it be the Taliban of 1996 and 2001, which imposed this incredibly harsh and draconian sort of a set of laws and standards in Afghanistan, or will it be a much more sophisticated and subtle uh, Taliban if, again, they are able to militarily sort of defeat the Afghan government and, and reassert complete control? And these are all things that people are are, are thinking about. Um, and then in terms of, you know, what would happen or what would it take for the U.S. or the West to get back into Afghanistan if this scenario that I just described played out? Unfortunately, and it would again, it would be a tragedy at multiple levels if all those gains are reversed uh, and children can't go to school anymore, or you know it's it's much more difficult. And women have have very limited rights, um, and uh, it's sort of you know the Taliban is the first amongst equals in the in the country. I'm not sure that the U.S. or the West is going to get back involved militarily again to stop that or prevent that from happening. I think the only thing that would draw the U.S. back in to Afghanistan is a major threat or, you know, no one wants this to happen, but a terrorist attack in the West or on U.S. soil. And that's the reason why we got involved in Afghanistan in the first place after 9-11. So unfortunately, I think that would be the only thing, at least under this administration, that gets us back in. Hopefully that doesn't happen. But I think that's kind of the the prospects of of a return. Uh, and going back to the the Iraq 2011 model, when the Biden administration made that decision in, in concert with the Iraqi government led by Nouri al-Maliki, um, they weren't banking on returning three plus years later with the rise of ISIS and the threat that ISIS presented. So I think that's that kind of specter is what it would take to get the U.S. Um, back involved. And then when it comes to sort of the decision and the options that were considered, and some of this is coming out now in, in press reporting, but Washington Post and New York Times, um, some other stories. One of the things I think is interesting is that they 
whether it was considered and, and clearly not chosen, but why wasn't there more discussion of Assyria? Because you mentioned Ryan Syria, like a Syria-like presence now, which the presence there is you know, relatively small, a few hundred um, troops, mostly special operations uh, troops. Um, but they have one mission, and that's counterterrorism. And um, they're not there, you know, trying to train, advise, assist, you know, large um, kind of other sort of forces. There's not a relationship, obviously, with the Syrian government, but they're there to sort of protect the U.S. interests in Syria to ensure that ISIS and that um, that country doesn't reemerge. So why why wasn't that even an option, or why wasn't that decided to have? You know, a very small footprint of U.S. troops that have a very limited mission, but that mission was to protect our interests and, again, to detect um, signs of plotting against the homeland or the West and disrupt it if if we had to. And you know, working with the Afghan government in coordination, um, and that doesn't appear to have been the decision that was that was made. So, I mean, for our audience, we've had General Petraeus on the uh, on the podcast twice, actually, with uh, for an individual interview with him, and then a, one of the episodes we did in partnership with the Atlantic Council on Javed. What you just said is very reminiscent of what General Petraeus has talked about in terms of this sustained, sustainable commitment. You sort of keep like a very sort of low cost, uh, small force uh, present there just to you know deter any sorts of threats that might occur. And uh, Javed, you actually interviewed General uh, McKenzie, who is a CENTCOM commander, back in November. And uh, in that interview, he talked about how the Taliban has not necessarily shown that they are, quote unquote, committed to denying al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan. And that, you know, he as a general is going to focus on what the Taliban do with regards to al-Qaeda and that they need to see action uh, there. Now, that was all the way back in November of 2020. Has, uh, in your perspective, has anything substantially changed, I guess, with the Taliban that would perhaps build that confidence to sort of justify this decision? I mean, I would say no, no. I mean, I have very limited insight from where I am now, but um, even you know, from what information I I can see, um, uh, you know, in, in publicly available information, I would say that the, the Taliban hasn't kind of lived up to those commitments as General McKenzie described, you know, several months ago. So, but we appear as a country to have made a decision that wasn't conditions based; it was time based, and and it's a very symbolic decision when it comes to time. Right, it's the twenty year anniversary of of 9-11. So again, hopefully these were all issues that were considered um, in the run-up to, to President Biden making the decision. And now the question or the issue will be, once we've made this decision, living with or accepting the risks that we're potentially going to incur or that are out there and, and making sure we've got some kind of mitigation capability to, to um, sort of suppress threats even though we may not be in the country to the extent we were even up until you know the beginning uh, of this year with about 3,500 troops. And again, there's some press reporting coming out suggesting that at least there's been talk about what that sort of offshore sort of capability or platform will look like, but I'm not sure that will be um, you know further revealed by the government or, or by the administration or at least um, more definitively disclosed. But it sounds like there's there's been discussion on that, but what that actually looks like, I don't think we know yet. 
So Javed, I mean, that for at least for me, that's my, one of my main concerns is that, you know, with the U.S. gone, that opens up the possibility whether or not the Taliban are in power for terrorist organizations or fundamentalist groups to kind of form or at least launch attacks or organize themselves in Afghanistan. And so, I mean, even, you know, Bill Burns, who is the CIA director, said that a pullout of Afghanistan diminishes U.S. intelligence capabilities. And, you know, you spent your career in counterterrorism. And while the United States doesn't have combat troops in most of the places where it conducts its intelligence activities, um, what kind of impact does this have on intelligence gathering? And I guess the, the real question is, you know, is it, is it really going to have that consequential of an impact for the purposes of what we are looking to do in Afghanistan from an intelligence perspective or a counterterrorism perspective? Yeah, uh, great question, um, Brian. So from a counterterrorism perspective, and, and there have been other former government officials who've already come out and said this too in the press, is that because Afghanistan is such, you know, it's a relatively non-permissive environment for anyone who's not uh, from the country, right? I mean, it is just a very unique country, very different culture. Um, even if you've lived there for a long period of time, you're probably not going to understand as well as people who you know spent, you know, generations there and know the the landscape um, better than anyone in the West does. So because of just the unique nature of Afghanistan, um, without sort of the protection and support of the military, it will be really difficult for intelligence agencies to exist in that, you know, that environment that is Afghanistan and conduct their their operations or their missions without that support and again the you know those those two sides the intelligence side and um the military they've been working hand in glove in afghanistan for for now 20 years so that's going to have an impact um one would think on on the ability to understand what's happening on the ground uh, and again not to say that it'll go down to to nothing or zero but it just makes it much more difficult. And the Iraq 2011 model is you know, another example of that, where when the troops leave, it also degrades your ability to understand what's happening from an intelligence perspective as well. But if we've made this decision, then we've accepted the risk. Um, and we're just going to have to live with that. And hopefully, there will be some ability to, to make up for that shortfall um, by not being on the ground. Um, and whether it's relying more on the Afghan government and its um, security services to tell us what's happening, other foreign partners who who may um, decide to stay uh, outside of the NATO um, partners, and so there, I mean, there are ways to to address it. But by not having the U.S. Um, uh, intelligence um, kind of teams there, perspective there, um, yeah, that that will that will have an impact on our ability to understand just the sort of the the day-to-day -day sort of nature of events are that are happening on the ground. So I was reading this political article recently that talked about sort of civilian uh, military aspects of well, I mean how our defense department sort of runs and the idea that there was the civilian leaders who were really pushing to draw down whereas the military leaders were not necessarily uh in favor of that. Uh what are your thoughts on that like I mean is there like a, I mean, what, what does this like sort of division look like, I guess, in government? Does it exist? What are we looking at? I wouldn't say it's a division so much. It's just, it's our constitutional framework, right? We have a civilian elected president and the military, despite 
the you know the, the large size of the military establishment and all the armed services, they report the military reports to a civilian commander and chief, and that's the way our 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 sort of system of national security works. And the military, uh, much like other national security agencies, when it comes to these kinds of decisions, they they have a voice, they have an input, and they clearly have a lot invested um, in these types of uh, issues, but they don't get to make the final decision themselves. That's always the president's decision as the commander in chief, right? There's only one commander in chief in our in our constitution. And um, you know, there's there's been tension in that over over time. Um, but this is this is just an example, perhaps, of if the reporting is accurate, as you described, uh, um, Andre, with the political article and others saying that um, there were some corners of the military that um, were cool to the idea um, that hopefully all those views were, were laid on the table for the president and the other sort of um, senior advisors at the NSC. But ultimately, it's the president's decision to make. And then once the decision is made, then the military has to execute that decision, whether they like it or not. And again, is there grumbling in the Pentagon right now? I would think at least in some corners, probably yes. But at the same time, they can't resist the order um, because it's been the decision has been made by all accounts. And now it's a question of they've got five months to uh, retrograde all that equipment and infrastructure and, and the people back um, either to some other part of the world or, or back here to the United States. Um, so um, that's just a feature of our of our government. Whereas in other countries, when you see you know the military oppose civilian rule, what they do is they try to overthrow the civilian government, right? And thankfully, you know that has never happened in in our history. Um, but, um, that's just the way our system is, is set up. Well, this will certainly not be the last time we talk about Afghanistan, but for the purposes of today, uh, let's move on and talk about Russia. So the Biden administration has announced new sanctions on Russia. It has expelled diplomats, uh, it is saying it's formally blaming, uh, their intelligence, their premier intelligence agency for the solar winds hacking against government agencies and large corporations. And so basically what we're seeing is a focus uh, on entities and individuals who carried out disinformation uh, campaigns. And really what this is targeting, targeting is Russia's efforts to borrow money, their sovereign debt capabilities. And so this is a, certainly a new angle and one in which that may or may not have significant impact just because, you know, Russia, while, you know, its economy has been declining, uh, they are on a, a somewhat stable footing economically. And so uh, it, it's certainly interesting, given all the things that are happening in and around Russia. We, of course, have seen this buildup on the Ukraine border, uh, the the poisoning, and I guess uh, you know this current state of Alexei Navalny, who is uh, basically withering away in a hospital after not getting proper medical care uh, at the penal colony he was in. He's the you know main opposition uh, politician in the country, and so I guess Javed, from from your point of view. One, do you think these sanctions will and these new efforts will have any substantive impact uh, on Russia's, I guess, activities? And two, will this completely destroy U.S.-Russia relations? Yeah, Ryan, um, thanks for bringing this topic up. Another fascinating, complex one, just like the Afghanistan uh, one we just described. And, um, you know, I've been of the opinion that um, 
for far too long, Russia has sort of had the upper hand, or at least appears to have had the upper hand when it comes to its sort of uh, um, relationship with the United States and sort of the the type of confrontation we're in. So we're not in the type of confrontation that we've been in in the Middle East um, or Afghanistan. This is a different kind of conflict, right? It's what people call the gray zone conflict. It's sort of operations other than war. And so Unfortunately, though, I would say that Russia has um, kind of embarked on a campaign against the United States, specifically using a lot of different tools against us, whether it's cyber operations, whether um, you know reported. And we had Eric Schmidt, if people remember, as our first uh, guest uh, more or almost a, a year ago, talking about the alleged Russian bounties on U.S. troops um, in Afghanistan, um, right? And sort of. Um, talking about Afghanistan again, um, the 2016 election um, uh, sort of disinformation and misinformation campaign that Russia ran. So um, you can go back several years now and see that Russia has been really aggressive about um, uh, in its posture towards us. And perhaps up until this week, I was of the opinion, we didn't seem like we were punching back um, either in kind or at the same level, or if we were, they were able to absorb um, sort of our responses or our retaliation. So if that assessment is accurate, and I'm sure there are people who would who would say that, you know, could take a different opinion, but um, it'll be really interesting to see that all the measures, Ryan, that you just described, the sanctions, um, the uh, diplomatic moves, the um, sort of the effort to uh, make it really difficult for Russia, um, I guess, to borrow ma- money on the sovereign debt. I know nothing about that world. We probably need to get Michael Barr back on here again to to help us understand the implications of that. Um, but will all of these things, and perhaps others, because I think Jake Sullivan, the National Advisor, has said that there will be sort of efforts seen and unseen. So maybe these are the things that are seen, and perhaps there are other things going on that you know we now in the public will never hear about uh, unless the Russians decide to to um sort of reveal them but um will this sort of stem the tide against this russian gray zone campaign against the united states obviously too early to tell but at least from the sanctions standpoint you could also make the argument that the united states has sanctioned russia extensively over the last few years again because of all of these things that russia has been doing to to us and the, i don't think that's altered their behavior um because if it had then they wouldn't have launched the solar winds operation which was launched almost a year ago now according to the press reports um you know it was discovered in late 2019 but apparently it had been launched the spring of or uh, discovered late 2020 but it apparently been launched the spring of 2020 so will this new package of measures um again things seen and potentially unseen will they Will they restore deterrence against Russia and send the message that the U.S. is now playing by a different set of rules and we're going to be much as aggressive to them as they are to us? Um, we don't know the answer to that. And will it further how it affects an already pretty sour U.S.-Russia relationship? I mean, yes, could things get worse, but they're pretty bad right now, right? I mean, it's almost... One would argue, um, probably most of the people listening to this podcast are old enough to realize, but I am. You know, this is kind of a Cold War 
type um, sort of mentality, I think, or shadow that's now cast across both countries. We're not calling it a Cold War, but as someone who grew up during the Cold War, it certainly feels like it. And um, it doesn't mean that there's the potential to have a more productive relationship with Russia at some point down the road. I mean, there are probably some areas of mutual interest, but we have to stop this aggressive campaign um, against us and against our interests at home and abroad. And until that happens, I don't think there's there's room to have that or you know to, to look for a better diplomatic relationship. So again, I think we have to restore deterrence. I think we have to impose costs. We have to draw a line in the sand and say enough is enough. Um, and then maybe that'll change their behavior. But I don't think now is the time to start offering incentives for them to get back to some kind of uh, negotiating table or diplomatic table, because I think they've had the advantage for far too long. And I think now it's time for the United States to, to regain some of that. Speaking of the negotiating table, I want to shift gears here a bit back to the Middle East, uh, because Iran, uh, as we know, the Biden administration has been open to, you know, reopening negotiations regarding, you know, a re-entry of the Iran deal, the JCPOA. But there was recently the uh, there was an incident at the Natanz facility, uh, which Iran, I think, has blamed on Israel. And Iran has stated that it wants to enrich uranium to about 60 percent. Uh, what is the motive behind this? Is this more like a negotiating ploy? Uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, so if Afghanistan and Russia developments weren't thorny enough, now we've got um, you know the potential for um, more sort of conflict with with Iran based on you know news reports of these uh, mysterious explosions at the Natanz facility uh, a couple uh, weeks ago and. Um, then the Iranians were pretty, uh, pretty angry about that, and lots of uh, sort of harsh words flying across leaders from both Iran um, and uh, and Israel. And I think it appears that one of the the steps that they've taken to sort of escalate things uh, is this um, enrichment to up to sixty percent. Um, so I think before they were, you know, somewhere in the twenties, but um, the higher enrichment, and again, I'm not a nuclear scientist. I'm not a, a uh, international finance person, nor am I a nuclear scientist, right? So, um, but uh, when it comes to uranium enrichment, you know, the higher you go in the level, theoretically, the closer you get to creating fissile material. I don't, again, with my very, very limited understanding of how this works, um, uh, you know, it takes an even higher level of uranium enrichment, well beyond sixty percent, to get to uh, the output, which creates fissile material that you could then um, put into some kind of atomic weapon. Um, but this is, I think, the Iranians being provocative, saying we're we're closer to getting this other threshold where you need to get fissile material or produce it, uh, and it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. Um, at sixty percent, then we were at twenty percent, and so. Again, does that give them leverage with the United States when it comes to the potential resumption of nuclear talks? Is it a threat against Israel that they will go, you know, on that path towards a nuclear weapon that both Israel and the United States are really concerned about? Um, but I think the Iranians have already taken some other steps. I, I don't know if uh, people are following the news overnight. There was a drone attack apparently at the U.S. military base in Erbil 
uh, Iraq, the northern uh, Iraq, um, sort of Kurdish-controlled territory. And all accounts uh, so far, at least from the reports I saw, was that it appears that those drones were uh, that had apparently explosive um, sort of packages attached to them were launched by Iranian-backed Iraqi Shia militias. And that is a proxy that Iran has used for almost 20 years in in the fight against the United States, first with the Iraq um, war, and then um, just the U.S. presence that's that's remained and uh, the U.S. diplomatic presence as well. We've seen the cycle of violence escalate with um, Iraqi uh, militia attacks against U.S. interests in Iraq. That's what led to the cycle uh, of violence uh, in December 2019, and then ultimately to the strike against uh, the Iranian um, IRGC Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani uh, in January 2020. So things have the potential to escalate um, rapidly again based on things uh, happening in Iran or then playing out in Iraq or potentially other parts of the Middle East. So the Iran issue is another major foreign policy issue that the Biden administration is going to have to tackle while now they're they're dealing with the you know the Russia issue and the Afghanistan decision. But um we're not out of the woods on on the Iran uh topic either. And again, it, these these incidents that have been brewing and this drone attack apparently that happened yesterday, what's the who who now has who owns the next cycle in, in the um or who owns the next sort of um, element of retaliation in this escalatory cycle? Is it us? Is it the Israelis? Is it the Iranians? Um, it's hard to hard to know right now. Yeah, I mean, there's so many moving parts here, and again, just yet another challenge for the Biden administration. Certainly, you know, I wasn't imagining this many foreign policy challenges this early on, but I mean, so, there's a lot to be dealt with, and so. I get just one more, I guess, question on this uh, Iran issue, just because, I mean, Bibi Netanyahu said, you know, the the prime minister of Israel said that he will never allow Iran to get the bomb. And the Biden administration is attempting to negotiate with Iran. And so this attack on Iran calls into question, you know, these negotiations. The German foreign minister, foreign minister condemned the attack. And I can't imagine that uh, the Biden administration was working uh, with the Israeli government in coordinating such an attack just because it completely contravenes uh, any negotiation effort. And so, but in, Iran, you know, may very well not see it that way. Um, and of course, you know, their proxies are are always very active. And so uh, this yet again creates challenges for the U.S.-Israeli relationship, for the U.S.-Iran relationship, for this whole region writ large. And so, Javed, I, I guess when we're looking at uh, the the question of Iran, uh, while negotiations are being attempted, do you really think that there's going to be significant movement? And who do you really see as having the upper hand in this period of time? I mean, I think the the West um, and the United States still has the leverage because the Iranians have more to gain from a resumption of diplomacy and dialogue and a relief from sanctions than than the West does, right? So the West can continue sort of this pressure campaign that the Trump administration um, started. Um, but but with the message to the Iranians that if you change your behavior, the things that are most damaging to you, we'd be willing to talk about them and give you some relief. But you, again, there has to be a change in uh, behavior. So um, that's where Iran has to think through very carefully 
how much is it willing to either escalate or retaliate against the things that it perceives have, have happened against it because the the ultimate sort of goal they're they're trying to achieve is getting out from this you know oppressive um, sanctions um, sort of architecture that has really um, uh, you know, squeezed their economy and, and forced the government to do things differently. Um, and so I think that if I were sitting in Tehran, I would, you know you would think the supreme leader and other advisors want to go back to the the days where sort of the middle 2010s where they're able to kind of get that that deal with the Obama administration where um you know there were concessions made all around so uh the Iranians said that they would no longer you know pursue any type of nuclear weapons related activity um they opened up uh, their facilities to international inspections um uh they didn't curb some of their other behavior but when it came to the nuclear sort of file they they sort of changed things but then uh, in in response to that they they got a lot of their currency that was frozen back they got access to international markets and the banking system i think that's probably the most important thing for them but it doesn't mean that someone's going to miscalculate or or make a bad sort of tactical decision that will have a strategic impact. So um, I still think the West has the upper hand here and the United States has the upper hand. But the Iranians, again, they can they can make things difficult. And whether it's using proxies or launching cyber operations or attacking Israel or Saudi Arabia um, or launching terrorist attacks abroad, I mean, there are a lot of things that Iran could do to show its displeasure over what's happening right now. And that's will be another thing we just have to going to have to kind of watch. So let's round out this conversation by talking about China. So we just actually had, I think, the world threats hearing in Congress just, I think, yesterday. And uh, I think one of the big things that came up actually was China. I think we had our director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, there uh we had the fbi director christopher ray and i mean they were and others and they were sort of talking about how china i mean i think haynes was saying like it is a peer competitor quote-unquote challenging us in multiple arenas and it, it seems like china is the biggest security threat i guess like what are your thoughts on that i mean there's so many i mean nearly all of these podcast episodes sort of cover china to some extent that china always sort of it's featured in like some of our episodes and just all these different domains, these different regions. What's your take on that? Yeah. Again, I'm no China expert, but I think a, a really interesting barometer to show um, at least how the U S kind of national security world thinks about threats is um, for those of us now on the outside uh, looking at um, sort of those worldwide threat um uh, testimonies and, and the written documents that are provided as sort of statements, um, and that I would argue for probably the first ten years after nine eleven, and again I was in government um, for certainly during that stretch, but then all the way through twenty eighteen. Um, I, I don't know this for a fact, but my sense is that probably in almost every one of those, again for at least the first decade after nine eleven, counterterrorism or terrorism was. The number one issue that was being addressed um, by different witnesses in those worldwide threat, um, either statements or, or hearings, um, and then I that probably started to change. 
and then where it would be really interesting to map out where the China issue started to increase in attention in those, even the, those sort of documents or those hearings. But here we are now, 20 years after 9-11, and Andre, as you said, um, certainly through the lens of the worldwide threats, um, discussions and documents that China's number one. And that's, um, at least from the early days after 9-11, that's a, that's a sea change, right? And US, uh, the US national security thinking about what our most significant um, national security threat is, and apparently it is now um, China. But I also think it's interesting is that if that really is, you know, the issue that's China kind of number one and perhaps Russia number two, and then, you know, Iran three, uh, and then, you know, counterterrorism is much lower down on the list than it was um, in years past. At least this uh, very intense focus on China with the Biden administration, that is a continuation of the Trump um, focus as well, right? The Trump administration had elevated China um, at the top or near the top of the list of national security threats. So you're not seeing a shift from the Biden administration away from China. If anything, you're seeing them further increase uh, the U.S. national security attention on China. So I think that's pretty fascinating, right? That even though you know, two very different um, administrations and two very different presidents, the China issue, if anything, has only been elevated as a national security concern. Well, I mean, certainly you you see these these shifting tides and this you know pivot to to Asia, which is very interesting. And you know, Javed, we could keep going on and on and on, but we're gonna we'll cut the conversation here for the benefit of our listeners. We're far over our thirty minute allotted time period, and so one, thank you very much for joining us. Your your insights and analyses are uh, very much appreciated, and I know our listeners will appreciate that appreciate them as well. And for all of you listening. Uh, we covered a lot today. There certainly are a lot of issues facing the United States and a lot of things happening in the world. So um, stay tuned to our episode next week. We'll, we'll likely cover many more things. Uh, and again, our episode on Mondays with John Chachari, uh, who is a Ford School professor. We talk about sovereignty sharing. It's a great episode, a wide ranging one. Uh, thank you all for listening. My name is Ryan Rosenthal. My name is Andre Gonawala. And see you on Monday. <laughs>